it's a week after episode two came out and um, I'm back together with Carly Goldsmith and we're going to chat a little bit about some of the themes, some of the ideas that came up in that last episode. So Carly, I mean for me that it's quite a dark episode. Yes, I mean I think it's interesting and as much as it really does make me think a lot and reflect a lot on what the emotional experience of that is like. So living in a place and growing up in a place where you're acutely aware everybody else thinks is a bad place. Um, And that is reinforced all of the time in the most innocuous of places. I remember learning to drive and my driving instructor, we just went randomly like on a route and we came up to come into Whitehawk and he went, oh, we're going into North Korea. <laughs> I just thought... Oh, God. Like, are you having a laugh? And I was 30 at that point. And those old feelings of, like, who do you think you are? Mm-hmm. Saying that about this place and these people. Are you being absolutely serious? Are you being serious? Like, are you so thick that you genuinely believe that living in Whitehawk is like living in a dictatorship. Like what? Like I don't even know what you mean by that. Yeah. But it's reinforced all. Like I was very aware of it as a kid. Mm. Really aware of it. Anytime you'd go outside of your friends or family or the people that lived on the estate, you were just so aware of it. And and at the time as well, kind of coming into the nineties, you had all of that discussion about sink estates and living on a sink estate and the whole kind of change in language from like social security to kind of welfare and all of the negative connotations that that are attached to that like benefits as a lifestyle choice and it's all about it's a culture amongst people and if and poor equals criminal yeah the whole criminalization of poverty you know I grew up through all of that and it really has quite a profound effect on you that doesn't actually really go away, which makes me sound, I don't know. But it, I don't think it does. I mean, I, I feel like every time, like even now, it's like I'm always not, I feel like I'm on guard, like I'm expecting at some point someone to say something that's going to shock you or take you back to that horrible feeling. You're like, oh, people think this about a yeah. whole group of people who they don't know any of them. And Indeed. they can have such extreme views. They really can. Uninformed extreme views. And you're talking about me and the people that I love. You're not talking about strangers. Like, this is, a per- this is personal to me. I just think it's very difficult because what we do is we expect people growing up in areas like this to cope with those very, very deeply uncomfortable emotions and stressful experiences because it's stressful growing up in a place that you know everyone thinks is a piece of shit. Mm. Like, it's not neutral. And yet, as someone from a working-class background, the minute I challenge someone from a more advantaged background or a more privileged background about the things that they've done in their lives to get to the place that they're in... It's like you've stabbed them in the heart. It's like they can't cope with it. It's like, oh my God, but, but what are you saying about me? Mm. And it's like, hang on a minute. 
So it's all right for you to be angry at me for even suggesting <laughs> that maybe some of where you're at in life is because you've been lucky. You know, you fell out of someone that meant that you had certain advantages. But it's all right for me to live with that my entire life, constantly being questioned, constantly being looked at as though I'm maybe not quite trustworthy or maybe I'm not who I present myself to be or maybe I don't sound like someone from Whitehawk or maybe my education means that, you know, people kind of are slightly thrown by me. It's almost like what's so essentially what you're saying is that people who are curious about the world and who like to learn and who think about things can't be from a place like this. Yeah. Do you realise how stupid you sound? But I don't think they do. I think that they just think that that's just fine. And they, they have absolutely no notion of what it does every time you trip over it again. I sort of I hinted at that story about my voice and changing my voice and told the story about my nan. I remember, like, you know, I, I, I was doing some sort of, like, public speaking training Right, because I had to do some stuff for work. And I just remember this moment where this person came up to me and said, oh, you know, great talk you did, but have you considered changing your accent? And it was one of those moments where I, I actually hadn't thought about it for quite a long time. And then all of a sudden, in that moment, I'm like, oh, shit, you found me out. Or do you know what I mean? There's a sense that I've sort of been caught out or yeah. all of a sudden I'm being looked at in a way that's yeah. different yeah. you know from how I see myself yeah. which yeah I just remember feeling so weirded out by that and so shit about it yeah because are you saying that the things I said lacked credibility or legitimacy yeah. because of how I because of how I sound mm. like I can't that's be exactly what you're saying yeah, yeah. I can't I mean, be trusted yeah and have you at any point you thought about before you opened your mouth and said that to me had you even considered what that would do mm. or even challenged your own thought process and thought, hang on a minute. You know, maybe that's my problem yeah, <laughs> that I think exactly. like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, maybe I don't need to make that someone else's. And maybe I need to challenge my own prejudice and my own stereotypes that say that just because he sounds a certain way, it must mean that, you know, you know, some things that what he said, whatever. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing that irritates me is that you then get accused, and I've been accused in the past many a time, of having a chip on my shoulder. Yeah. And it's like, oh, so not only do you, you have the right to insult me, not only do you have the right to say that, or to make me feel like anything I say or anything I do isn't proper or isn't okay or is in some way a bit off, but when I then say, actually, that's probably not a good way to be, or that's probably not a good thing to say or to think. I'm the one with the problem. <laughs> yeah, I once had that. I had a, 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 an old friend who was who went to Oxford and accused me of having a chip on my shoulder when I was ever whenever I'd speak about my education experience. And I was like, "What? What are you talking about?" I can only imagine that there's something about that feeling that it gives them. That's yeah. niggling away at the truth, which is, um, you know, actually so much, like you were just saying, so much of where you're at is down to luck. Yeah. It's not because I haven't worked hard enough that I'm not in that position. Absolutely. And I think 
it's a way of the, for them to discredit you. It's a way for them to make themselves feel better or bigger than they are. Because imagine going through life thinking that everything that you see is a consequence of your own hard work and good decision making. Mm. I mean, that's a kind of very big puff of bullshit, isn't it? Mm. That you exist in. And for someone to even suggest that that's not necessarily the case must be like a threat to your kind of back. It must be a threat to your who you think you are, your sense of self, all of the things that you feel that you've done in order to get to wherever it is that you are. But I would suggest maybe you need to go and speak to someone about that. Mm. <laughs> like, I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes, but there's some research that came out a couple of years ago into how people talk about their backgrounds and yeah. how they talk about their class. And, and it, it, it sort of really highlighted how many, many people over sort of do it with you know, their perception of the kind of background they have. So lots of people might go, oh, well, my great, 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 great granddad was working class. So I, I've, I'm definitely working class. <laughs> yeah. So of course I've had to really work hard to get to where I am. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So I'll put a link to that in the, in the show notes because it's quite an interesting read. But I think, it, again, it says so much about that idea that no one wants to admit that they've had a hand up or they've had an advantage that someone, it, it, you know, they people want to sort of live through their life thinking it's all down to their own hard work when, you know, even, I mean, I see it in my, my experience, even though I didn't have that many advantages, I had some. It would be a lie for me to go, I haven't ad been advantaged by certain things because we all have some to a certain degree. Yeah. It's just some have a lot more. It kind of connects to this the point that Darren McGarvey was saying around this kind of imperialist notion that communities like ours are just these containers and that, you know, all of these people can come in because they know better and they can do better. And, you know what, if you just listen to them and do what they say, then maybe you can be better too. Um, you know, if I'm thinking about it in terms of, you know, communities like this kind of being the cash cows of some of those, you know, more advantaged people... And it's kind of like, well, that whole notion that all you have to do is, is, is educate the locals or all you have to do is make the locals in your own image and all of a sudden all of these things will go away, I think drives a lot of kind of middle-class people to set up those kinds of projects where the automatic assumption they make is, oh, you know, I think that like this, I think that that's really beneficial... So someone pay me to go into these communities so I can teach other people to think and act in the way that I do. And at no point does anyone ever or do they ever sit down and think to themselves, why would they want to think and act like me? Mm. You know, what benefit will that bring to them? Because actually they have to survive in, a com in, in many ways a completely different type of space and place. Yeah. Am I actually doing them some kind of harm? Because essentially what I'm saying by just going into that community and saying, actually, what you should be doing is thinking and acting like me, is that the way they're currently thinking and acti acting is in some way faulty yeah. or wrong or isn't the best for them. And I just think that there are so many people who actually don't think about what they're saying when they set up these organisations that go to change people about who they about 
who they actually benefit. They benefit them because they get a salary and they get a certain amount of kudos for doing these things and trying to, you know, change these terribly poor people. And if only they could be better and be more like me, then, you know. Mm-hmm. But actually, they never think, is this actually of any benefit? One of the reasons why I wanted to focus on the sort of community stuff in this episode is because it sort of leads directly into the next couple of episodes, or it's obviously it connects to all of it, but, you know, why are the views of others in our... And we're talking about Brighton and Hove right now. Why are the views of others in the city and their negative perceptions of people from this area? And I'm not saying everyone has them. What impact does that have on education? And I don't want to give too much about too much away about what's coming up in future episodes, but it has a huge impact on things like catchment areas and some of the arguments that are around for who goes to what school mm. and... You know, so there is a direct connection from that stigma. And there's a a piece of research that I'm going to share in episode four, which is, you know, again, I don't want to give too much away, but absolutely disgusted me when I saw it about the perceptions of some people in the city towards kids and parents from our estate. interesting isn't it so on the one hand you've got the horror of that like oh I don't want to go near those people you know I don't want those people kind of anywhere near me and then another another group of people in that situation going oh but I can make money out of this yeah you know and then you've got the people who actually have to live these lives (laughs) and 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 get by in whatever way that they can good bad and indifferent because there are good bad and indifferent indifferent people everywhere everywhere, you know um who are kind of really the pawns in this, you know, who are just kind of having to, to to cobble together their lives in that context of people either thinking that you're not worth anything, you don't think the right way, and actually you need to be different, and then people thinking, oh, but we can make money out of doing all of those things. And I, and I think that that's so frustrating, that kind of the way in which stereotypes play out in people's lives, the way in which they affect you, internally the way in which they contribute to the stress that you feel kind of knowing that other people think that of you and having to kind of manage often quite difficult and challenging circumstances as well as this additional kind of you know people kind of looking down the nose at you a little bit and making all sorts of judgments about who they think you are and and what they think your life is about and then other people thinking oh but you know we can make you better, like we can change that. And I think it's interesting when you talked about, um, you know, faith in systems and, and, and faith in, in the status quo. But I can totally see why there are some families on this estate. Actually, I'm surprised that when I ask people, most of them are like, I really want my kid to get a good education. Like, I, I, that's something that's really important to me. Because if you've lived in a place where generation after generation after generation education hasn't really done its job, like hasn't really done the thing that you're kind of told that it will do, um, at what point do you stop relying on it to do that thing and actually think, do you know what, we're in a situation where we have to make other arrangements. You know, my kids are going to have to get by in their lives doing in other ways. You know, we can't rely on an education system that's going to, you know, mean that they have the exams that they need in order to progress to the next stage of their lives, in order to progress into university, in order to progress into the professions. If you know, if your your whole life's experience tells you that that's not 
how this is going to go down. People are creative. People have to survive. They create alternative ways of being. Um, and I never really understand why other people don't understand that. Yeah. Because to me, it just seems like common sense. Like, why would you have a faith in a system that you've never really seen work for very many people? Yeah. And you know if those people that are sort of almost looking down on it would do exactly the same if they were in that position. You oh, know. yeah. Of course they would. Absolutely. So it's so it's interesting to me that like this whole issue of stigma and the ripple, the ripples that it has through people's lives in terms of how they see the world, how they operate within it, you know, what they what they have to do in order to get by, in order to survive in often quite difficult circumstances, how that how other people bring those perceptions and misunderstandings or sometimes quite deliberate misjudgments about people into places where policy is made into places where decisions are made into places where people have power and can do things to affect other people's lives and I think one of the interesting things that I know that we've talked about is the the strategy so in the podcast episode we talk it you say that there isn't a kind of strategy to really address how to close the gap between advantaged students and disadvantaged students. And I would, you know, advantaged educationally, but often means materially and socioeconomically advantaged. Um, but actually that there, there is a strategy now. And that's one of the things that's changed, I guess, between when the when we when you recorded that and now. But when you read that strategy, none of these things really are addressed or things are said like, oh, there should be a better relationship between the schools and the community. And no one thought, but there isn't a secondary school in the community. <laughs> if only someone had had that idea in 2005. Literally, exactly. So, and there's no, and so, and, and uh, you know, so A, you've got that issue. B, you've got the, but actually, what do our schools think about our community? What do we mean by better relationship? Are we suggesting that they don't have a very good relationship then? Well, why might that be? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what efforts do schools need to make in order to create relationships with people for whom school hasn't always worked out the best? You know, what kinds of what ways are we communicating with the, the parents of our pupils and our pupils in order to make sure that they feel that we're on their side, you know, that we're trying to do the best for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, so literally a line will be create better relationships between schools and communities. But there's nothing in there about what does that look like and what does that mean and what are some what could be some of the unintended consequences of doing of doing that well if you send a load of i'm not being funny but teachers tend to be people that have done well in the education system because they're teachers yeah, yeah. if you send a load of people out who have a particular view of education who have done well at school themselves may have come from families that have done pretty well at school not always but often that's the case who don't sound like anybody <laughs> you know any anybody in the communities that they're going to create better relationships with like there are all kinds of ways in which that can go horribly wrong that's something that darren mcgarvey talks about in i think his first book you know like going in and doing work in places how you, you know like people will sniff you out within a millisecond if they think you're 
you know, a fraud or you're not connected to their lives or you're not from their area or... And so immediately, you know, tons of kids from this area are going into schools and getting that sense. And we, we sort of, midway through that piece of work around belonging in schools as a campaign, class divide campaign. Um, and, you know, some of the sort of stories we're being told by from, from some of the young people who are travelling sometimes up to an hour to get to school every morning um, are feeling like they don't belong in their schools. Yeah. And, and that's going to have a huge impact on their ability to to learn, to thrive, to do the stuff they need to do in a school. Yeah, because if you don't feel like you belong, potentially you, it may mean that you don't actually feel safe. You know, I think there are a couple of things. It may mean that you don't feel safe, which means that actually, you know, we know biologically what happens when you're stressed, you know, and actually being able to learn when you're stressed, it, it really compromises, you know, your ability to learn, actually. So if you're constantly feeling like this isn't a place for you or you have to watch your back or you have to, you have to be very alert to your surroundings, then that is not, that is not a space where learning happens which I think is, you know, a huge challenge for a lot of our students. And it not. It, it, and what's interesting to me is that it isn't even necessarily those kids that are saying, actually, I feel like I'm being singled out or I feel like I'm being treated differently because of where I'm from. It's the kids who are saying, actually, I, I'm, I do pretty well at school, I'm all right, but I see how my people, how the people, my friends from my neighbourhood are treated and that makes me feel like I don't belong here. Mm-hmm. So it's I think it's even more complicated than if you're a kid that causes trouble or you've got issues or whatever, then you may feel like you don't belong in school to young people who are watching all of this and observing the ways in which their friends are being treated from their neighbourhood and going, but that means that I don't belong. And so even for them, it's a stressful kind of environment and I'm not surprised. Sometimes I'm surprised at the level of like commitment to education of a lot of our young, a lot of our children show in as much as they appear able to give it chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. After, like they try to operate in an environment that to them is quite a difficult place to be. And they do it. They do it all. The, they do it all the time. They do it more often than they don't. Um, and I don't think that they're given enough credit for that because that would be like, if you think about it, going into a place where you don't feel like you particularly fit or you don't feel like you're particularly welcome or you don't feel like you are doing particularly well, as an adult going into an environment like that, how many times would it take you to go, oh, well, I'm never going back there again? Mm-hmm. And yet this is the situation we're forcing our children into yeah. kind of constantly yeah. And then they're forced into, well, because they're forced into that, they end up then bashing up against all this new behaviour stuff that to me, I sort of look at it and I go, really, that's an acknowledgement that our school system's failing, that you've had to implement that. That says to me that you, know, you, you, you don't have the capacity, the you know, the amount of teachers you need in a school, the time to support kids in the way they need it. So all you can do is put them in a different room um, and expect them to then get on there. Yeah, and I think also that kind of goes back to... It's like a big circle, isn't it? It goes back to the stereotyping and the stigma 
because we do have a, a case in Brighton and Hove, like in towns and cities all over the country, where some schools have disproportionately high levels of kids on free school meals. So, you know, the category is disadvantaged. I hate that word. And I'll talk about that in a second. But but so you then have those schools and then you have other schools that have, you know, proportionately fewer pupils who are disadvantaged. And we have to accept that growing up poor affects your entire life. Like it affects everything. It affects child development. It affects family relationships. It affects healthy growth. It affects, it just affects everything because when you're growing up constantly and there's just lack all the time, how are you supposed to thrive in that? Like you can't thrive in that. And we live in a country that thinks it's okay to keep 4 million of its children living in poverty And then you put a disproportionate number of those children in particular schools. But why do you do that? Well, because the parents of the more advantaged pupils don't actually want their kids to go to school with other kids who are poor because, oh, you never know what's going to happen. That's a bit risky. That's a bit dangerous. You know, maybe, you know, they'll influence my child and my child's my child's education will also go down the drain. And all of a sudden they won't be saying please and thank you at the table and whatever. And then we say to those schools who are dealing with those disproportionate levels of numbers of kids who are growing up in poverty. And now you've got to do everything else. Now you've got to get them through their exams. Now you've got to. And that's really difficult. It must be huge. And I fully respect the fact that for schools where there is large numbers of kids who are disadvantaged. Dealing with the with the issues that are outside of their learning must take up an enormous amount of time, energy, effort and focus. Mm -hmm. And if you're a school in that situation, what you can achieve or what you can do is must must feel like it's, you're constantly battling against that in comparison to other schools that may seem to have it so easy in comparison. And I think... What's interesting to me is that the system understands that because when we've spoken to people and they use the term advantage and disadvantaged schools, like we didn't say that to them. Mm. In our more advantaged schools, in our disadvantaged schools. And I'm like, well, how are you making that judgment then? Well, the only way you're making that judgment is by the number of poor pupils that go to those schools, right? Because how else are you talking about advantage and disadvantage? We'll come back to your hatred for disadvantage, the word disadvantage in a sec, but just to put it into context, just a bit of data on free school meals, which is sort of shorthand and, uh, you know, the measurement that's used to sort of look at where disadvantage is in schools. In Brighton, in the two schools that are nearest to to Whitehawk, one of the schools has nearly half of its school population on free school meals. And yet there are schools in the city centre where just over 10% of the kids are on free school meals. And, you know, you look at those figures and you go, something is badly wrong with our school system when you've got such a difference in the amount of free school meal, meal kids going to different schools. In the comprehensive system? Yeah. Yeah, they're not grammar schools, they're not uh, private schools. No. These are just state schools. Yeah, in a comprehensive... And, and that, to me, is is... It shouldn't be allowed. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. you know, there are all kinds of things that shouldn't be allowed. 
we are going to come on to that stuff in later episodes, definitely, because it's to do with catchments, it's to do with all kinds of things. Um, disadvantage, what is it about that word? Oh, God. Because I think that it locates the problem in the person or the area and not in the society, you know. And I, and it's really difficult because you're kind of like, well, what other words or terms would we use? Or, you know, I think in America, in America like, underserved is quite a kind of a routine way of describing a community mm. like the one we're sitting in right now. Yeah, we're in Whitehawk right now. You know, it's yeah. an underserved Very community. Very underserved community. Yeah, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's a place where traditionally, you know, services and 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 the kind of, you know, have, haven't, have, yeah, that they've been underserved in all kinds of ways. But I don't really even like that. To me, it doesn't kind of really get, a, you don't really get a sense of what it feels like growing up in a place like this by saying it's an underserved community even though it does in some way reference the fact that there are other people outside of yeah, it's here outside influences yeah, yeah that is kind of making this the way that it is you know and i you know i the term oppressed you know other people have said oppressed um but i think if you said to most people around here like are you oppressed definitely definitely you know what I mean? like you know, if you said to most people around here, are you disadvantaged? They'd be like, no. Um, but that, I think, at least partly is our kind of almost pathological fear as being identified as someone in poverty. Yeah, yeah. And it goes directly back to the idea of being stigmatised. Yeah, because if I'm poor, therefore you think I'm bad. If yeah. I'm poor, you think it's all just my own fault. If I'm poor, you probably think, you know, I'm I'm a criminal. You know, you criminalise me or whatever. You make all of these negative judgments. And And actually, the other thing I think which is really important is you know, how do you judge yourself as disadvantaged if there is such a huge distance between your life and the people that you know and the people who are more ad- advantaged? Like most people know the people that they know because there's such social segregation in so many areas of British life. You know, you don't tend to meet people that aren't like you unless you're in particular kinds of circumstances. Maybe if you're a doctor and you're a patient or I don't know, you're a barrister and you're a solicitor, or if you're a cleaner and you go and clean someone's houses, like how many opportunities do you actually get to look at what it's actually like on in a different place? And I suppose that's what private school did to me mm. in a small way. It gave me a window into another kind of way of being. Um, but we live in such a socially segregated society that those opportunities are so few and far between. Yeah, and it's it's definitely one of the things that, Again, it's another thing that I would I want this podcast to sort of create discussion around. You know, we've got this huge segregation in our state school system, our comprehensive system, and it is really extreme in Brighton and Hove. Why is that? And what do we do to change that? Mm. And what benefits are there from having a better social mix across our schools? There definitely are some, and there's some stuff we're going to cover in episode four, talking about about some of those benefits that, that came out of some work that happened back in the early 2000s. Um, but I'm really interested in that, and I think it's such an important conversation we need to be having yeah. as a city. And I think it's also important like, to, to follow that up, I think it is. But for people who are listening to this to think to themselves, you know, if you didn't grow up on an estate or you didn't grow up in poverty, how many people currently in your life had that experience? Do you ever recognise that experience in any particular way? Are you curious about it? Do you ever ask, ever ask them about it? 
if you work in an organisation, how many people in your organisation had that experience? How many people in your senior leadership team had that experience? How many people who are making the decisions for the company that you work for or the company that you own have those experiences? Mm. And if you don't know, why don't you know? Because you know about other forms of diversity. Hopefully you do. But actually social class is so foundational, it's so fundamental to the way our society is organised that but it's the thing that we don't talk about. Yeah, yeah. There's a word that's used, isn't there, a lot, this, you know, it's unconscious bias. And um, it's quite interesting thinking that it's only unconscious the first time you realise. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> but actually, I think we've gone far enough down this road for it not to be unconscious anymore and that yeah. actually people should be well aware of, of this bias that exists and should be actively doing anything in their power. To, to, to make it go away. Yeah, to challenge themselves over it. Yeah. And if you've got a project trying to make people seem a bit more like you, think again. <laughs> like, just yeah. think. Just hand the pot of money over to those people <laughs> you want to be more like you. Absolutely. And, and just trust them to do some good work. Absolutely. Episode three coming up next week. We are going to be hearing all about your school experience and your brother's school experience, which, you know, I, I mean, we've called the episode Sliding Doors because I think it's that that word sort of defines really your experience. And, and you know, I don't want to give too much away, but it's definitely worth um, subscribing and listening to next week. And we'll be back the week after to discuss the stuff that comes out of that. So thanks for listening. Like and subscribe. Leave us a review. We'll see you next week. We're learning